While on this subject, we also must not omit the respect shown to this plant by the Gaelic provinces. The druids, that is what they call their magicians, hold nothing more sacred than mistletoe, and a tree on which it is growing, provided it is a hard oak. Groves of hard oaks are chosen even for their own sake, and the magicians perform no rites without using the foliage of those trees, so that it may be supposed that it is from this custom that they get their name of druids, from the Greek word meaning oak. But further, anything growing on oak trees they think to have been sent down from heaven, and to be a sign that the particular tree has been chosen by God himself. Mistletoe is, however, rather seldom found on a hard oak, and when it is discovered it is gathered with great ceremony, and particularly on the sixth day of the moon, which for these tribes constitutes the beginning of the months and the years, and after every thirty years of a new generation, because it is then rising in strength and not one half of its full size. Hailing the moon in a native word that means healing all things, they prepare a ritual sacrifice and banquet beneath a tree and bring up two white bulls, whose horns are bound for the first time on this occasion. A priest arrayed in white vestments climbs the tree with a golden sickle and cuts down the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloak. Then finally they kill the victims, praying to God to render his gift propitious to those on whom he has bestowed it. They believe that mistletoe given in drink will impart fertility to any animal that is barren, and that it is an antidote for all poisons. So powerful is the superstition in regard to trifling matters that frequently prevails among the races of mankind. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and that reading was from our old friend, Pliny the Elder. Obviously, it was concerning the druid rituals about mistletoe. Robert, you are leaning into Christmas topics this year. I'm, I'm a little disturbed by this. Do you want to explain yourself? <laughs> oh, I just, I, I finally decided, you know, it was, it was foolish to resist. I should just, I should just lean into Christmas. I should give in to Christmas. And, uh, and it's paying off, you know, because mistletoe is a fine example. It's easy to just assume it's just this silly tradition that, it, that results in, you know, uh, smooching uh, underneath. That sort of thing, but it's actually like moon worship, sacrifice, and uh, and parasitism. Yeah, it's it's actually really crazy. Um, again, this quote was from Pliny the Elder, who lived twenty three through seventy nine, Roman historian. Uh, this particular translation was the Rockham Jones Eichholz uh, translation, which you can find online. Uh, and it does sound like one crazy Christmas party, doesn't it? No matter how how out of control your office Christmas party gets, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to be white bulls marched in and human sacrifices made to some sort of uh, druid god. But that's how you know a party's good. Like if you're <laughs> there for the first time some year and they bring in the two white bulls, like you yeah. know it's going to be a wrong. When the golden sickle comes out, um, yeah, it's 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 time to to really commit to staying or to go ahead and head out and go home. Call it a, call it an early evening. Um, yeah, this. Uh, I think this will be an interesting episode. And it, it, I was tempted to to even write a long form form poem, mm-hmm. uh, something like "Twas the night before Christmas, and deep in the woods, a sacrifice was planned by the Gauls and their druids." <laughs> but um, 
alas, I, I didn't have the, uh, the poetic energy to keep going. Well, there's always next year. But anyway, so if you know us, you know that we can never resist consulting Pliny the Elder on any topic of uh, of the natural world or of monsters or of mm-hmm. history. He's got the best and often funniest takes on stuff from ancient Rome, right? And and certainly we, we don't do not depend on first century uh, historians like Pliny for our uh, uh, for our data, but it adds a lot of a flavor to what we're talking about. And you, usually we are talking about the things that he's. Uh, quite wrong about or mm. or the the thing that he's reporting is like purely mythological mistletoe which he talks about quite a bit in the natural history uh, however he he does manage to get some things right there's there there are a lot of things that, that that are that are less fantastic nobody's speaking out of their bellies uh, so much when discussing mistletoe mm-hmm. well let's consult plenty on mistletoe and then we can talk a little bit more about what modern science says about this plant vampire So first of all, he says, uh, quote, there are three kinds of mistletoe. One that grows as a parasite on the fir and the larch is called stelis in euboea and hyphaiar in arcadia. And the name of mistletoe is used for one growing on the oak, hard oak, holm oak, wild pear, turpentine tree, and indeed most other trees. And growing in great abundance on the oak is one which they call dryos hyphaiar. There is a difference in the case of every tree except the holm oak, and the oak in the smell and poison of the berry and the disagreeably scented leaf, both the berry and the leaf of the mistletoe being bitter and sticky. The hyphaiar is more useful than vetch for fattening cattle. At first, it only acts as a purge, but it subsequently fattens the beasts that have stood the purging process, (laughs) although they say that those with some internal malady cannot stand it. I like the idea there that you would essentially just use the mistletoe to poison your flocks and then the ones that survive get more food to eat and so they get better, bigger. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, picking up with Pliny, he says, quote, The method of treatment is employed for 40 days in the summer. An additional variety is said to be found in mistletoe in that when it grows on deciduous trees, it also sheds its leaves itself. But when growing on an evergreen tree, it retains its leaves. But universally, when mistletoe seed is sown, it never sprouts at all, and only when passed in the excrement of birds, particularly the pigeon and the thrush. Its nature is such that it will not shoot unless it has been ripened in the stomach of birds. Its height does not exceed 18 inches, and it is evergreen and always in leaf. The male plant is fertile and the female barren, except that even a fertile plant sometimes does not bear. And he continues later on discussing mistletoe. Quote, mistletoe berries can be used for making bird lime, if gathered at harvest time while unripe. For if the rainy season has begun, although they get bigger in size, they lose in viscosity. They are then dried, and when quite dry, pounded and stored in water, and in about 12 days they turn rotten. And this is the sole case of a thing that becomes attractive by rotting. The sole case? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then after having been again pounded up, they are put in running water, and there lose their skins and become viscous in their inner flesh. This substance, after being kneaded with oil, is bird lime, used for entangling birds' wings by contact with it when one wants to snare them. Now, I wanted to note that I looked this up and found that bird lime is real. This is not like one of these legendary magic Mm -hmm. potions that Pliny just credulously reports. It is this sticky substance that's used for catching birds in branches like he describes. It's sort of an artificial spider web that we maintain. Like a glue trap. Yes, it's like a tree-based glue trap for birds. 
It has long been used in human history for bird trapping, though it's not quite clear uh, like how often it actually was mistletoe-based. But I've also read that bird lime was used in World War II to create anti-tank weapons known as sticky bombs. The idea there would have been – like a soldier on foot could potentially stop a tank if they've got a bunch of high explosives and they can put it in some kind of sticky package that they can stick to the tank and run away. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm not kidding when I, when I say that I, I, would, I would love to do a whole episode just on anti-tank weapons. Oh, yeah. There's some fascinating science there, especially from World War II, different things like shaped charges and things that the, um, the Germans would do to their tanks to prevent shaped targets from being uh, – shaped charges from being affixed to the side of the tank, mm-hmm. essentially like covering it in a, 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 a plaster or mud-like uh, a substance and then adding these ridges so that it wouldn't stick. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we, we can definitely come back to that. Now, I, I have to revisit again. What is Pliny talking about when he says it is the only thing that oh. becomes more useful when rotten? Does he not know about pickling or like beer? Or, I, I don't know. Right. What? Yeah. I mean, just, just yesterday, uh, having a meal with, with my family and we were commenting on all the, the things on the table that, that were in some way pickled or, or made use of vinegar, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's like – there are multiple ways of pickling. So you could just like brine something. But anything involving actual fermentation, mm-hmm. he's got to be able to appreciate that. Maybe Pliny just hates fermented foods. I don't know. Maybe so. So it's tempting to keep reading Pliny for our facts on mistletoe. But of course, that would be ridiculous. Our understanding of the plant has, has come a long ways over the last 2,000 years or so. And botanists are still figuring out things about this baleful plant turned holiday smooch inducer. Mistletoe, which uh, is generally referred to uh, 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 by the species uh, Phoridendron flavicens or Viscum album, being just two examples of the species. Uh, But it's a parasitic plant that grows in or on trees, especially hardwood trees such as apple and oak. There are some, even though Pliny told us there are three types, there are some uh, 1,600 known species of mistletoe around the world. Uh, It invades the tree with its roots, which seep into the bark of the host tree and suck water and nutrients out. So it is a plant vampire. And this can certainly harm the host tree and cause uh, branch deformities. But like uh, with a lot of parasites, the goal here isn't to kill the host. No, that usually works out bad for the parasite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the parasite needs to live in or on the host. Mm -hmm. So usually it doesn't, uh, you know, want to kill it, right? Uh, However... Mistletoe can prove fatal uh, to the host during times of drought, I've read, because while, because while the host plant will have certain reactions in place to, conver- to conserve moisture during times of drought, the, parati- the parasitic mistletoe just continues to live it up uh, with reckless uh, abandon, you know. So it, it would be, you know, like some th- somebody's uh, stealing food out of your fridge mm-hmm. and uh, in a time of famine, like, they, they don't care. They're just going to keep eating the same portions. Right. You might tighten your belt, but they're not going to. Yeah. Mistletoe is not going to tighten its belt. Now, parasitic plants in general are, are fascinating. Oh, I, yes. I was looking at a book uh, called uh, How Plants Work, Form, Diversity, and Survival from Princeton University Press by the British botanist Stephen Blackmore. And Blackmore writes that it's roughly about 1% of flowering plants that are parasitic. Mistletoe is a flowering plant. And of these, about two-thirds are parasitic on the roots of the host plant. So they'll be down in the roots, underground, mm-hmm. or on the ground. And only about one-third are parasitic on the host stem. So mistletoe plants are the weird of the weird. Not many plants are parasitic and not many of the parasitic plants operate up on the stem or the trunk of the tree the way mistletoe does. Mm. 
And so I think it's worth taking a look at what kind of equipment this plant vampire uses to drain the lifeblood of its host. Because uh, – well, so, okay. First of all, this structure that it uses to pierce the tree is called a haustorium. It's a modified stem or root-like structure that gives the parasite access to the inside of the host plant. And I get a strong feeling that if we were plants, looking at haustoria growing into a tree – uh, it would be like a vomit-inducing image, mm-hmm. like like when we actually look at a bot fly burrowing into human flesh. This is a fascinating parasitic penetration, and there are multiple ways it can happen. So you've got these different kinds of haustoria. Sometimes parasitic plants just produce a single large haustorium, which forms a kind of bulbous tumor sinking into the surface of the host plant with multiple parasitic stems branching off. Sometimes they produce multiple haustoria, which take over from the uh, parasite's traditional soil root once the host has been acquired. And these haustoria are part of a general class uh, called epicortical roots, bark-penetrating roots. In the same way a normal plant would put roots into the soil, this one has root-like structures that pierce the bark of the host plant and stab and go down inside. So they puncture the host plant, they grow inside, they breach the vascular tissue of the host plant so they can steal nutrients and water. And they sometimes even form networks of epicortical roots inside the host plant. So to go with the vampire analogy, it it doesn't quite capture the full extent of the parasitism here. You have to imagine a vampire. Okay, so vampire bites your neck, Robert. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't just bite your neck and suck your blood. Instead, it bites your neck and then its fangs begin to grow deep inside your body and penetrate your veins and arteries and grow into maybe networks or fang tunnels under your skin. And then maybe the vampire also grows new fangs out of its chin and out of its eyes and his nipples and stuff that keep piercing you again and again. Ooh, that's a rough image. Yes, for for plant audiences, this is an R-rated feature, <laughs> maybe X-rated. Yeah, I mean, essentially growing root-like tendrils into your body, or yeah. in this case, of course, into the plant. So one of the things that Blackmore points out in his book is that many parasitic plants lack chlorophyll uh, because they're stealing energy from the host. So they don't need to make their own food via photosynthesis. And this is one reason parasitic plants are often in many beautiful colors. They don't need the green pigment chlorophyll to absorb light energy and kick off the chemical process of photosynthesis because unlike most plants, they're not making all or any of their own food. I've included a couple of pictures here of uh, other parasitic plants growing off of the stems of hosts like a parasitic climber known as dodder hmm. that is this beautiful orange and blue and yellow. It, 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 looks, uh, it almost looks not like a plant. But anyway, mistletoe is usually an exception to this, right? Yeah, technically it's a, a hemiparasite. A parasite, a parasitic plant that is capable of some photosynthesis, like you said. Uh, so it's not as destructive as other forms of plant parasites that simply drain the host dry. There are plant parasites that are more uh, in the destroyer vein. Mm-hmm. But mistletoe tends to at least make some of its own food via photosynthesis, though it varies species to species. And some species of mistletoe produce relatively little food autotrophically. It, it just depends on which one you're talking about. Now, we mentioned earlier that uh, botanists are still figuring out things about mistletoe and how it works, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 2,000 years after Pliny. And uh, interestingly enough, according to two separate studies that were published in 2018 in the journal Current Biology, 
The plant lacks key cellular components that other organisms depend upon to convert glucose into the energy-carrying molecule ATP. It uses alternative energy pathways which generate uh, energy in a different part of the cell. In other words, it lost respiratory capacity uh, in its evolution, something previously only observed in unicellular organisms and in single-cell organisms. So, at least for now, unless other discoveries are made, it is seemingly unique among multicellular organisms. Basically, over the course of millions of years, it remodeled the way that it generates energy at the molecular level. Now, I think maybe it is time to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss some more interesting features of the mistletoe parasite. All right, we're back. So here's another strange feature of mistletoe that Blackmore writes about in his book that I mentioned a little bit ago. So Blackmore says that some species of mistletoe exhibit a weird form of mimicry where their leaves become similar in appearance to the leaves of the host plant. Huh. So why would this be, right? It's not like – now, you, you can imagine – Uses of physical mimicry in the animal world, right? Like you've got ant mimics that want to be able to blend in with a bunch of ants or bee mimics that want to blend in. You know, you want to look like some other animal. But the host plant in this relationship between the parasitic plant and the host plant, like an oak, doesn't have eyes to deceive, right? Right. So uh, one possible – so people are wondering why would this happen? One possible explanation here that Blackmore mentioned seems to be that the mistletoe is trying to survive by blending in with a host plant that has foul-tasting leaves that herbivores don't like to eat. Hmm. When in fact, uh, a grazing herbivore like maybe a deer or a giraffe or something – it might try mistletoe and find that the parasitic plant is in fact delicious. So instead, the parasite tends to try to blend in with nasty or unpalatable uh, host leaves by having leaves that look the same. That's that's just one possible explanation. And this is interesting because I feel like when I see mistletoe and actually identify mistletoe, it is because it is painfully obvious in its location, such as it is the one green thing growing uh, in, a, in a tree that has lost its leaves for the winter. Yes, uh, or its stem structure is so obviously mm-hmm. different. Like the tree might have thicker, sparser branches, and then the mistletoe is suddenly this puff. It looks like a tumbleweed or something. Right. Many, many smaller branches. Uh, and uh, and so sometimes trees can have natural structures that look like that that is the tree itself, like the witch's broom phenomenon, mm-hmm. where a tree will produce what looks kind of like a tumbleweed or some crazy tangle of of stems and branches on part of it. And I think this is just usually an indication that something is wrong with the tree, but it is the tree itself doing it. But yeah, th- this is interesting anyway because I, I feel the same way you do. Usually I feel like you can notice mistletoe on a tree or, or parasitic plants on a tree in general because they look so different. Now I feel like by this point uh, most people have seen some depiction of mistletoe. Uh, there's probably one accompanying this episode at our landing page on Uh But uh, if you haven't seen it there, you've probably seen it in art, holiday decorations, or again just hanging in your neighborhood. Mistletoe has pointy green leathery leaves usually with with waxy berries that are either red or white. And these berries are eaten by birds who then defecate in other trees, thus spreading the seeds. But the seeds are also sticky, so they spread as well when birds have to wipe their beaks on branches to clean them off. Or their feet also. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
And the, this connection with birds is interesting because in olden times, people actually thought the plant emerged from bird poop itself. Oh, Pliny was saying that, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. yeah. And then the name Can of the, only ripen in the stomachs of birds. Right. And this is also reflected in the name of the, the plant itself. The word mistletoe is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word mistle, which means dung, and tan, which means twig. So mistletoe is the old English version of mistletoe. Oh, that's interesting. So you so you do have a tradition of essentially kissing under the sticky dung berries. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, throughout this whole episode, like that's the thing I keep coming back to is that uh, all these uh, these ideas about the plant and then the the uh, the identity of the plant itself, the way the plant functions, seem so at odd with this quirky, just romantic tidbit that has uh, just become not a central detail of our holiday traditions, but, you know, at least, um, uh, you know, an identifiable part of it. Now, as much as we want to associate mistletoe through our traditions with, uh, with positivity and kissing and all that kind of fun stuff, you shouldn't be eating mistletoe. Don't put it inside you. That's right. Uh, humans should not eat, eat the berries as they can make you ill. And we're talking severe stomach cramps and diarrhea or e- even uh, death in some cases. Yeah, I was looking up some uh, stats on mistletoe toxicity. And so I looked at a an article called Holiday Plants with Toxic Misconceptions in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine by Sabrina Evans and Samuel Stelpflug. Uh, so they, they looked at two different common mistletoe plants that people use as decorations. One is American mistletoe, which is Phoradendron serotoninum, and then European mistletoe, which is Viscum album. And both are potentially toxic in slightly different ways. American mistletoe produces phorotoxin, a toxalbumin, and this is toxic to humans, but most small ingestions don't produce much of a reaction. European mistletoe is relatively more toxic. It uh, contains viscotoxins which, quote, inhibit cellular synthesis, thereby affecting cells with rapid turnover like gastrointestinal mucosa. So mm. the, the mucus in your gut, in your uh, digestive system, needs to rapidly produce new cells. This inhibits that, and that's probably one reason you get reports of gastrointestinal distress after people eat it. Quote, after a latent period of several hours, clinical effects from viscotoxins can develop and are primarily gastrointestinal upset with potential necrotic lesions resulting in sloughing of the gastrointestinal tract. Bradycardia, delirium, as well as toxicity of the liver, central nervous system, kidney, and adrenals can also occur, although the incidence is not known. Uh, Fortunately, most cases of ingestion of mistletoe in the literature do not result in death, uh, but you you still should probably avoid consuming it, and you really do not want to make mistletoe teas because it seems like that's where the danger gets super Mm. – gets real. Right. And and so obviously one of the problems here too would be if you keep mistletoe in your home, uh, you, you would potentially have to worry about children or pets mm-hmm. uh, getting a hold of the uh, the berries. So um, it's interesting what you said earlier about, uh, about uh, how it affects cells. Yeah. Uh, because it's interesting that some experiments have revealed potential medicinal uses for the plant, including work from the University of Adelaide in 2012 – explored the use of the plant's extract in battling colon cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, In particular, they found that the ash tree mistletoe plant, uh, Fraxini, uh, was more effective in battling colon cancer cells than chemotherapy. 
Uh, scientists are still looking into it, of course, but uh, uh, mistletoe extract remains a popular alternative treatment for cancer in uh, many areas, and it's uh, it's been widely studied, and it is apparently prescribed in Europe with uh, reportedly few side effects, but there is currently no FDA-approved mistletoe cancer treatment in the United States. But of course, uh, on the other hand, mistletoe has been a part of human magic uh, and, uh, and, and magical thinking and magical potions and mm-hmm. traditional uh, uh, healing uh, regimens for uh, quite some time. Uh, for instance, it does show up in traditional Chinese medicine as uh, hu ji sheng, uh, where, and this is uh, basically dried leaves and stems of a variety of mistletoe, and it's used to treat a variety of ailments. Yeah, it uh, comes up with all kinds of stuff. In fact, I think Maybe it's time to play our favorite game show, Weird Old Letters to Medical Journals. <laughs> Do you want to go down this road with me? Yeah, how far back are we going? 1904. So February 1904, there's a British officer stationed in Calcutta named Lieutenant Colonel George Ranking. And he wrote a letter to the Lancet about mistletoe. And in this letter, he quoted from a translation of a Persian medical text he had encountered called the, and I, I might not be pronouncing this right, the Makzanu Ladmia, which means the storehouse of medicines. And this text discussed the medical uses of mistletoe, saying things like, quote, it is effectual in purging away the black bile and mucus humors. A few ways you would use it include, quote, with turpentine and wax, it is used for the ripening of boils. Got to ripen those boils. Pustular eruptions of mucus origin and phlegmatic tumors also for softening the joints. Do you want them softened? I'm not quite sure what that means. Well, I don't want them hardened, I guess. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Uh, quote, with arsenic and pitch, it is used to extract the nails. And with quicklime and grape juice and honey, it is used to make the nails grow again. I'm not quite sure what the, it's extracting the nails. Um, I'm, I'm just having had some of my nails extracted before. Uh, I would assume it might have to do with, say, ingrown uh, Uh, nails, ingrown toenails and whatnot. Uh, That might be a case where you would need to extract something and then afterwards, like, hope for some level of uh, appropriate regrowth. Okay, here's one. A decoction of it in lime water is useful for removing swellings of the spleen, while a paste of it made with lime is a means of removing induration of the spleen and is also useful in drawing out gross humors from the depths of the body. Uh, But the authors also say it is injurious to the heart. And then finally, quote, when mistletoe berries are cooked with honey, syrup of dates, and sapistan, and made into long, fine threads, it is put on the surface of trees when any bird that settles sticks to the tree and is caught. That's bird lime again. Yeah. Glue traps for birds. that's, That's pretty sick. Right. And it does, of course, tie in with the sticky property of, uh, of the berries that we discussed earlier. Now, all of this is very fascinating because on one hand, we we do see medical professionals identifying potential applications here, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially saying there is an effect on cells and in in particular on cancer cells, it seems, Mm -hmm. uh, that may prove useful in the long run. Uh, on the other hand, we, we don't seem to fully understand yeah, it. Yeah, we, we don't seem to fully understand it. It's uh, again, there's no FDA approved medication uh, um, as of this publication uh, that uh, that derives from um, mistletoe. But on the other hand, we also have all of these traditional uses of it. I and mean, with the traditional uses, I feel like it may come back to something we've discussed in the past that uh, the the something is happening yeah. uh, situation where. 
as we've discussed, consuming these can make you feel ill, mm-hmm. can make you feel um, a little weird, like yeah. something is happening inside you, and it is. Yeah, yeah. It gave me diarrhea. Something's happening. Right. And in doing that, it, it certainly purged you of, well, something. Mm-hmm. Did it purge you of what was actually ailing you? Did it, Or did it just give you this incentive to, to lean into the magical thinking of the, the potion or elixir or tea or whatever was prepared for you uh, uh, by the uh, magician or druid or soothsayer? All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some of the mythology of mistletoe and indeed get back to that question of why is it hanging around at Christmas time? All right, we're back. So I think it's time to refresh on that passage from Old Pliny and talk about the ritual of oak and, oak and mistletoe. Okay. So uh, Old Pliny the Elder says uh, about the ritual of oak and mistletoe, he says, the Druids are the priests or the magicians of the Gauls. He says, the Druids hold sacred both mistletoe and the hard oak trees that it grows on. Hard oak leaves are necessary for Druid rites and spells. Uh, The Druids think that anything growing on a hard oak is sent down from heaven. When the Druids find mistletoe growing on a hard oak, which he says is pretty rare, I don't know how rare it actually is, they hold a ceremony, which is also timed with cycles of the moon and 30-year intervals. Uh, So they hold a banquet beneath the trees. They show up with two white bulls and bind their horns. A priest dressed in white climbs the tree, cuts the mistletoe with a golden sickle. And I I should note, I looked up uh, Viscum album, the native European uh, species of mistletoe, and it does often seem to have a kind of green gold or golden color. So I wonder if there's any association there with the golden sickle. Uh, then so he cuts it. The mistletoe falls into a white cloak below. They kill the bulls while praying to their god. And then, quote, they believe that mistletoe given in drink will impart fertility to any animal that is barren and that it is an antidote for all poisons. So powerful is the superstition in regard to trifling matters that frequently prevails among the races of mankind. He's just kind of like insulting them at the end there. (laughs) Does he say that about Roman rituals? Well, I mean, mean, Roman rituals, I guess, at the time were the – uh, it was the bleeding edge of uh, cultural advancement, yeah, right? Yeah, those are the rational rituals. Yeah. <laughs> or at least that's what the entrails of the bird told him, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. But so they believe that it g- will give fertility when you're infertile and that it will uh, cure all poisons. Now, the association here with the idea of fertility does give you some kind of link. You know, I wonder if the the idea that it would make animals and presumably humans also fertile – could be a could, could be a link to the kissing. Could be right. You know something going on there. That does seem to because because the the fertility and then also some ideas that it's an aphrodisiac. Uh, these these are recurring themes in some of these older traditions that I believe have been like the the main the only thing that's really remained after they've been boiled down by popular culture. Okay. Uh, here, here's another example of sort of the, the, the mythic meat that has been boiled away from the, the bones of the tradition. And that has to do the, with the role of mistletoe uh, in the death of the Norse god Baldr. So I was reading in Dictionary of Nature Myths, Legends of the Earth, Sea, and Sky by Tamara Andrews. And uh, she talks a bit about the death of the Norse god uh, Baldr, the god of light, son of Odin and Frigga. And uh, he, was a, he was a being of just beauty and light, white hair, born on the winter solstice. Uh, and the winter solstice here being the beginning of the sun's journey toward maximum brightness. 
But then he dies on the summer solstice, the day of the sun's peak brightness, but the beginning of its fade toward winter. So his, uh, his birth is the thing that brings us out of the cold, mm-hmm. and then his death is the thing that, uh, that, that dooms us to descent back into winter. Hmm. And, you know, this is the kind of seasonal um, uh, motif that we see in a lot of old myths. I yeah. Mean, a huge number of ancient religions have strong connections to the idea of the, the passing of the seasons. Right. Uh, and, the, you know, there's always been this interpretive idea that the – uh, that like a a god who dies and is reborn or descends into the underworld and comes back up has something to do with like the winter, spring, summer cycle. Right. And then, of course, our holiday traditions, uh, Christmas traditions, what have you, uh, these are all intrinsically tied to these ideas as well. Mm-hmm. The The things we must do, uh, the traditions and rites that will sustain us through the time of cold death, uh, through the darkness and back into the light on the other side. So, uh, but, but let's get back to Balder here. So, Balder dreamt of his own death. And oh, of, no. Yeah, and of plots against him. Uh, but luckily, his, his mother is a powerful god. I mean, she's the, the, the god of, uh, of love. And so, uh, what Frigga did is she, she sent out a, a message to all the plants, the animals, even the diseases of the world. And she said, look, my son's off limits. Right. He's having dreams about people trying to kill him and plots against him. So, I'm just stay gonna, away. Stay away. Off limits. Uh, and then all the plants, animals, and diseases are right, right on. What are the other plants that would be threatening him? Or is there were there like killer trees at the time? I mean, I guess a tree can fall on you and stuff too. Okay, yeah. yeah. There are thorns. I mean, you know, she's probably covering a lot of ground here. There are a lot of animals that were probably not going to kill a god either. But uh, but as but then again, as we'll see here, um, this. This might this might seem like a ridiculous level of uh, protection, even for a mother god, but uh, but perhaps not considering uh, somebody that was working against him. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, none other uh, than Loki. Oh, it, it would be just like Loki to like sick some rabbits or daffodils to kill you. Yeah, so Loki does get involved, but but at any rate, this is what happens. Depending on the version that you're reading, she either forgets to tell Mistletoe. Uh, that her son is off limits and that he shouldn't die. <laughs> okay. Or in some versions, since mistletoe is a plant without roots in the earth, it could not hear her command. Oh, okay. uh, and I, I like that version better. Yeah. And so what happens is the god Loki tricks the blind god Hoder into hurling a fistful of mistletoe at Baldur's heart, killing him dead. Oh, no. And I, I was looking this up. I found some artistic depictions of this that look less like a bundle. Like because when I read that, I'm imagining like a big wad of mistletoe hurled like a baseball into Baldur's heart. Uh-huh. And I've seen some interesting depictions of this where where uh, Loki is whispering to Hoder, and then Hoder just drives the Halstorium, this like two pronged death route straight uh-huh. through Baldur's heart and out the other side. So like breaks off the fang of the plant vampire and uses it to kill the god of light Baldur. In this painting or drawing, I don't know what this this uh, this image you've got here, what it looks to me is like Loki is like making out with Hoder. <laughs> <laughs> and they've both got their hand on this little two-forked thing that's going straight through Balder and Balder is like, no! He's got a real death face going on in this image. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to remember to... Um, 
put this on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com, hopefully with a little uh, extra information about where it came from. But uh, so, yeah, what happens here is that Balder dies and the sun declines. And while the sun eventually comes back, Balder does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the lords of the underworld only agreed to his resurrection if everyone on Earth wept for him. And the thing is, everyone did, except for Loki. <sighs> <laughs> so Balder will not return to the Earth until Ragnarok. Loki, the original troll. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we see, you know, more of the symbolic uh, role of mistletoe here in uh, the mythic understanding of winter in Norse traditions. And by the way, this is also a reason that some Norse traditions held mistletoe had the power to resurrect the dead. Mm. Now, wait a minute. We So... Th- I love that legend, but what does that have to do with kissing? Are we getting any closer <laughs> to figuring out why there's kissing under the mistletoe? Yeah, underneath the, the god-slaying um, parasitic tree root. Well, uh, you know, th- there are other traditions uh, that we should probably touch on, such as the old French tradition that the plant is is now cursed to never find purchase on Earth's soil because it was once a variety of tree, and that tree was used to construct the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, it, it seems a bit uh, a bit cruel to blame the tree for that. Uh, Jesus himself sometimes blamed trees. Oh, yeah? You the cursing of the fig tree. I have forgotten. What, what was Jesus' beef with figs? Uh, well, he goes by a fig tree and it doesn't have figs because figs weren't in season and he gets mad at the tree and he curses it and withers it. Oh, man. Uh, I think it's it's like an allegory, I think, for about like people who – I don't know. It's been a while since I read the story. I think it's about people not – you know, bearing good fruit in the spiritual sense. Oh, okay. I sh- I should read that because I'm I I have a fig tree, and sometimes oh. I curse it for the way it behaves. Really? Yeah. Uh, but generally, it gives me it gives me figs in the end. So uh, d- to refresh, we've talked about some of these traditions that place mistletoe firmly in winter and as a part of winter traditions. And uh, and again, we also come back to the idea that mistletoe is often seen thriving in lifeless winter trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's one in my neighborhood that does this. It's uh, it's over a road, so I hope there aren't too many people trying to, to smooch under it, but, uh, but I see it pretty frequently. And then uh, we have these other traditions that push it more toward the area of sex and life. Uh, Frigga, again, was the goddess of love. Uh, and some traditions claim that the berries were aphrodisiacs, that they would enhance uh, uh, you know, sexual activity and desire. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of weird given the symptoms we looked at. <laughs> well, you know, maybe just a small dose with a splash of uh, magical thinking would do the trick. But, <laughs> but hopefully you, you don't want full-on diarrhea um, before you, uh, you know, uh, seek out your love. When I get that feeling, I need it. Intestinal sloughing. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we come to our modern traditions with mistletoe, generally the version we hear is that like two people who are dating or married or whatever, that they, they kiss under the mistletoe. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's about it, right? It's just this cute thing that you do. Um, but some traditions require the male kisser to remove a berry with each kiss. So these are kind of just thinking Dungeons and Dragons terms. I'm thinking these each berry is like a magical charge okay. on the plant, and once they're gone, there's no more kissing. Uh, other traditions frame it as more of a bit of relationship good luck. Oh, I see. Well, wait, what do you do with the berries when you remove them? Do you have to eat them with each kiss, or you just throw oh, them on the ground? They didn't What's specify. Up? I guess you just chunk them and yeah. uh, and hope nobody uh, pick no children pick it up and eat it. Oh, I know. Maybe it's a a way of combining the process of kissing and making bird lime. <laughs> Maybe so. Now, other traditions say that you can put it under your pillow if you're a maiden, and then you will dream of your true love. 
And meanwhile, in other traditions, it was seen as a sort of uh, designator of holy ground. So in other words, the leaders of, say, two warring forces might meet beneath the mistletoe and parlay. And kiss? Um, or just just talk? Though the kissing is just, optional. I mean, okay. if things go really well, then yes, maybe there could be kissing. But otherwise, this would be the kind of place where you would just discuss in safety uh, some manner of truce, uh, mm-hmm. what have you, exchange of captives. Uh, I can't help, of course, but think to the scenes in uh, in Highlander where uh, where uh, Connor McLeod uh, meets uh-huh. the Kurgan, and they can meet in holy ground. They can meet in a church, and it's totally cool. Um, all the Kurgan can do is just, you know, be awful to everybody. We can't actually uh, try and cut Connor's head off. Well, we know there's a quickening soon to be had. Right. But they could have met under the mistletoe, it sounds like. Maybe uh-huh. that's something that's explored in the television series, and we'll hear about it from uh, Highlander TV fans out there. You know, I've also seen it suggested uh, that this tradition of kissing under the mistletoe somehow comes from the mistletoe's association with Saturnalia, the mm-hmm. sort of winter Roman festival of wild revelry and, you know, no rules kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like a, a chaos plant as well. Yeah. I mean, Saturnalia involved a lot of reversals of things. Oh, it was one, one of these many festivals where, like, the master would serve his slaves and, ah. like, there would be a, you know, gambling was legal and that kind of thing. So beneath the mistletoe, the, the fool may kiss the princess and it is okay. Yes. Okay. All right, so that, that, that's the weird thing with the, with the modern tradition. We just see all of these various ideas about mistletoe kind of just smashing into each other, and there's very little left at the end of it, but it's it's still something that sticks with us. Well, it's frustrating because I feel like we don't really have a firm answer to the question of where does the kissing under the mistletoe come from, right? There's just a lot of kind of ideas, but we, we don't really know. Right. But I do feel like the, the, the nature of the examples we've looked at, it kind of allows us to triangulate uh, you know what where uh, where this tradition comes from you know yeah a dash of uh of 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 the uh, the god ordained here a dash mm. of uh of reversal here uh, and a dash of uh, magical aphrodisiac and uh, uh you know reproductive uh, uh elixir here right ritual sexual sloughing yes <laughs> and then we're left with uh, what's left of our modern mistletoe tradition but one thing for sure is we've certainly gotten away from the darker aspects of mistletoe. Uh, not all the time. Like sometimes I think it's still used as a as a good indicator of, of evil and ruin. Yeah. Well, and, and we can find a great example of that in the works of uh, William Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Who, who's going to read this quote from Titus Andronicus? Is it me or you? Oh, we could split it up. Okay. I'll, I'll go first. Have I not reason, think you, to look pale? These two have ticed me hither to this place, a barren, detested vale, you see it is. The trees, though summer, yet forlorn and lean, or come with moss and baleful mistletoe. Here never shines the sun, here nothing breeds, unless the nightly owl or fatal raven. And when they'd showed me this abhorred pit, they told me here at dead time of the night, a thousand fiends, a thousand hissing snakes, ten thousand swelling toads as many urchins, would make such fearful and confused cries as any mortal body hearing it should straight fall mad or else die suddenly. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> there's your, there's your, your, your mistletoe. Happy um, holidays, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think part of, of truly appreciating Western American holiday traditions is, again, to 
to, to realize all of the, the deeper and really d- uh, often darker mythological undertones mm-hmm. uh, that we've mostly swept under the, uh, uh, the red and white rug. Why is that rug so red and white to begin with? Uh, I mean, it's the color of uh, snowy death and blood. Um, but, you know, it, it, it brings me back to the – there's a line uh, from Terry Pratchett's The Hogfather, which is a, a, an hilarious book, Christmas book. Uh, they made a, a fun uh, TV uh, uh, version of it years back. And it's one of these where the Hogfather, uh, the, the Discworld's version of Santa Claus, uh, is, uh, is taken away. Something happens to him and death himself, the Grim Reaper, voiced by Ian Richardson, uh, has to jump in and play the role of the Hogfather for like cosmic purposes because – the Hogfather must do his job so that spring may return again, so that mm. the world can continue. But uh, in the intro, uh, the narrator uh, points out that that, that all of our, our stories, all of our traditions are sooner or later about blood. <laughs> all right, so there you have it. Mistletoe holiday episode. If you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to our mothership, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find all all of the episodes. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. Uh, you'll also find a little tab at the top for our store, a Tee Public store, where you can uh, find a number of different uh, designs, uh, some of which are our logo, some of which are just related to episodes we've recorded. And you can get those on stickers, shirts, tote bags, throw pillows, you name it. And I also want to re- remind everybody to check out our new podcast uh, titled Invention, in which Joe and I talk about... Uh, the history of inventions, these game-changing uh, inventions that came along. Or not so game-changing. Or not so game-changing. I mean, everything's uh, everything's fair game yeah. uh, in this uh, show. But you can learn more about it at inventionpod.com. And you can also find the show and subscribe to it uh, on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly, with feedback about this episode or any other, with a suggestion for a future topic, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.